Well, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Ephesians 1, 3 through 23. If you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 976. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I want to begin kicking off this summer sermon series with a twofold apology. The first apology is of the I'm sorry type. <laughs> and as I've just been preparing for this sermon series, as I've been thinking back on our Luke sermon series, I just felt like I owed an apology to all of you for the way that I maybe handled some things and approached some things, uh, just getting wrapped up in all of the commotion of the last year. Uh, everything that's been going on is interesting as I was reflecting on it. I think the 
the, the section we were in in Luke from, from 951 until the end where Jesus is going to Jerusalem and there was just so much conflict, right, between Jesus and the religious leaders. And it was fitting in a sense uh, for everything that was going on in our world, but I felt at times I kind of let some of that get the best of me. Um, so I just feel like I need to apologize for maybe not being as faithful to, to God's word as, as I should have been at times. And I would ask you to, to pray for me that I would be faithful to God's word. The second apology is not the I'm sorry type apology. It's the more apologetics type apology, um, the defense type apology. So this is a, a defense of where we're going this summer, if you will. Uh, we're going to be doing a topical series this summer for the first time. Uh, it's not something that we're um, like the biggest fans of, I guess. We're not, I'm not a, a huge fan of topical preaching in general, but there is a very uh, specific purpose for why we're doing this. And I think we're going to be obviously focusing on Christ as our redeemer, as our prophet, priest, and king. And we've mentioned this, that we're preparing to preach through the book of Hebrews in the fall. So some of these, some of these sermons are going to be a little bit different uh, than maybe what you're used to. We're not going to be, I'm not going to dive into Ephesians chapter one here and try to preach through this whole uh, text. We actually, the first sermon series we preached here at Livingstone was Ephesians, and it took us three weeks just to get through this chapter. Um, so uh, yeah, we're not, I'm not going to unpack that. I will, I will share a few things that I think are, are relevant, but um, so again, it's going to be a little different. Uh, some of the, some of the messages will, will have a text that we're going to kind of jump off of, but we're not going to be taking deep dives into specific texts going verse by verse. And that's okay. Uh, there's no rule that says we, we have to do it that way or that we can't do topical sermons. I'm not, again, like I said, not against topical sermons, but I think the, the steady, regular diet uh, of the people of God should be going through, expositionally preaching through uh, books of the Bible. So just a little something different for the summer. And so that's kind of my apologetic for for that for why we're doing that so but let's let's look at Ephesians chapter one here just a few things that I want to look at that I think tie into where we're going uh, I love I love this chapter I think it's a beautiful picture of who Christ is of what he has done for us and we see in this first section here in verses three to eleven we see who we are uh, we see what is true of us because of Christ that we see that we are chosen before the foundation of the world. Again, our, our catechism question, uh, shorter catechism 21, is who is the redeemer of God's elect? And this is describing who we are as God's elect. We are chosen before the foundation of the world. We're predestined in love. We're adopted as sons and daughters through Christ. We're redeemed and forgiven by his blood. We have the riches of his grace lavished upon us. The mysteries of his will have been revealed to us. We have received an inheritance. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit as we look forward to fully possessing our inheritance. Each one of those things I just mentioned is just worthy of an entire long study in and of itself. So if you want to take a passage to meditate on, to realize what you have as a Christian, what Christ has done for you, it's probably one of the greatest places to go right here, Ephesians chapter 1, to realize what you have because you have a faithful Redeemer. And then verses 20 to 23, I love this because it talks about what Christ has done and who he is. He's been raised up by the Father. He's seated at the Father's right hand. He rules and reigns as the king of the universe, and he is the head of the church. So if you want to know who is Jesus as our Redeemer, this is who he is and what he has done for us. 
Jesus is the focal point. He is the flawless masterpiece of all of redemptive history. And all of scripture points to him as we've seen the last two weeks as we've been wrapping up Luke, right? Luke 24, we saw the road to Emmaus where Jesus appears to those two disciples and he unpacks the scriptures for them, right? He explains everything from Moses and the prophets, how it all pointed to him. And then they run back to Jerusalem. They tell the rest of the disciples and then Jesus shows up and he explains more to them from the scriptures. He breaks the bread and their eyes are open. And so we see that the emphasis of all of redemptive history, all of scripture, it's all found in the person and work of Christ. And that is where our emphasis needs to be. And that's what we're going to be emphasizing over and over this summer as we look at Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king. Simply put, Jesus is the hero par excellence. Our catechism question, who is the redeemer of God's elect? I love the answer because it says the only redeemer of God's elect. There is only one. The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God, became man and so was and continued to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. That answer right there just unpacks a whole bunch. You want to go back to early church history and see some of the heresies that were confronted. A lot of that is is right here in this answer. So the Lord Jesus Christ alone, he is the hero that we all need. He's a hero that we need to rescue us from ourselves, to rescue us from sin and Satan and death. He's the hero we need to save us from the wrath of God. He's the hero we need to stand in our place as our perfect substitute. And he's the hero that we need to reconcile us to God and to bring us back to God. There is simply no hope of deliverance. There is no freedom from the trials and the temptations and the sufferings of this life apart from the perfect and finished work of Christ. I think human history, both ancient and modern, are filled with attempts to look for heroes in all the wrong places. We can look way back to ancient Greek and ancient Egyptian mythology. Uh, there are, there's the plethora of gods and goddesses. Uh, there are all kinds of, you can look at Norse mythology. There's, every culture has some type of idea of, of, of some hero, some rescuer. And it's something that's very common in our culture as well. If you look back to the late 30s and the early 40s with comic books, kind of superheroes being introduced, uh, first in, in comic books and then starting to be, become into film. Uh, I, I just this week, I googled the, the words superhero craze, and it was just fascinating to see all of the articles, all the different, different analyses of, of like how this affects our lives, how this just even affects the film industry with all this emphasis on, on superheroes and all these superhero movies. And I'll admit, uh, this isn't really my thing. Like, I, I never read comic books as a kid. I just, I just don't get into it. I'm totally fine if, if that's your thing. Uh, not against it at all. Uh, it doesn't really captivate my attention, but I think the, the idea of it is fascinating to me, uh, how captivating it can be. And I think the thing that's, that's interesting to me as I think about it is that, that is this, this desire. Again, we could go way back, right, to like ancient Greek uh, culture, Egyptian culture. This is a, this is a desire that, that humans have always had. We want this hero who's going to win in the end. We want someone who's going to come and defeat the bad guys, right? And we want someone who is both human, 
but also has special powers who can do things that we can't. We project ourselves onto those characters. We, we, want, to, we want what they have. We want to be able to do what they have, or we want them to, to be special to us. So there's this kind of interesting connection that we feel. And I think Westminster Shorter Catechism points us right to that. The son of God, right? The hero, the eternal hero who became man, who became like us. That's what all these stories are longing for, right? They're longing for this truth. Someone that's greater than us, someone that can do things that we can't do, but who is like us. That's Christ. And Shorter Catechism 22 explains how he became man in his humiliation. That's so important that we understand that he, 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 he became like us. He became human. He humbled himself. He died for us. And then Shorter Catechism 23 talks about the offices that Christ executes as our Redeemer, both in his humiliation and exaltation. So even, again, I'm not going to be careful not to make some like, you know, parallel like prophet, priest, and king are these like superhero roles that Jesus steps in. I mean, nothing like that. But again, there is this idea of we're, we're looking at how Jesus does these certain things, right? And does things that we can't do. But in a sense, and as we're going to be looking at this summer, like we are called to, as a church and as an individual Christians, if you read the Belcher book, chapter eight, he's going to get into this, how we are called to function in these prophetic and priestly and kingly roles in different ways as the body of Christ and as individual Christians. So again, there's, there's kind of this like out there thing that we can't really do and we can't really grasp, but through Christ, we, we actually can. So I think there's, that's interesting. And I hope that, I hope that helps us as we, as we kind of get into this this summer and see uh, both what Christ has done for us and what we are called to do as his people. So this, that's what we'll be unpacking this summer, 13 weeks, uh, intro kind of message today. And then we're going to be looking at, we're going to have four weeks each on prophet, priest, and king. So in each of those sections, we're going to have two Old Testament passages that look at the offices of prophet, priest, and king in the Old Testament. And we're going to have one New Testament passage that looks at Christ and how he fulfills that. And then the fourth message in each of those sets is going to be the application for the church and the application for us as individual believers. Again, uh, the, the Belcher book is, is a great guide, uh, and we'll be using that for our summer conversations. So I would encourage you to, to pick that up if you haven't yet. And um, just going to kind of summarize a little bit of, of the argument, especially kind of coming from the opening chapter of, of Belcher's book. The, and the first chapter is titled, The Importance of Prophet, Priest, and King. So he begins laying the foundation for the roles of prophet, priest, and king in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, where Adam and Eve were to exercise dominion over all of creation. So that's that idea of kingship. And then we're told in Genesis 2.15 that the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now this is really fascinating. The words here, the word work, the Hebrew word for work is avad, which is the word uh, that means to serve or to work. The word for keep is the word shamar, which we saw, we talked about this a little bit in, in several of the Psalms that we looked at last summer, uh, to guard or to keep when, when the psalmist is praying for God to guard him and keep him. That's the word that's being used there, that, that word shamar. It's a pretty popular Hebrew word. So work and keep. 
It's interesting because both of those words are used of the priest's work in the tabernacle throughout the book of Numbers. So there's this idea that what Adam and Eve were called to do in the garden, there was God's tabernacle where they were to actually act in priestly roles of guarding and keeping the garden. And that's what the, the priests in Israel then would go on to do that same work of guarding, uh, of working and keeping uh, the tabernacle. So, And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. Thirdly, then, the prophetic role is how they handle the word of God. They, and they didn't handle it well, as we know, right? Uh, they not only disobeyed God's command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember that when Satan came to them and said, did God really say? What did Eve do, right? She twisted God's word. So Adam and Eve failed big time. They failed in their prophetic role. They failed in their priestly role. And they failed in their kingly role. But God in his faithfulness did not leave his people without prophets, priests, and kings to lead them and to represent them. Even before Israel is, as a nation is, is officially born, Abraham actually operates in all three of these different roles. Then after him, the roles get separated out. Moses is going to be operating very clearly as a prophet. Aaron, his brother, will be operating as a priest. Samuel comes, he operates as a prophet and a priest. And then David comes and operates as a king. And as, as we see, as we go through the Old Testament, obviously there's, there's other kings who come after them. There, there's other prophets and priests who come after them. And sadly, but not unexpectedly, these offspring of Adam and Eve, they also fail where Adam and Eve failed. They were not the heroes of the story. They were not the heroes that we want them to be, right? We read the story of King David, how he's this little runt, right, who gets picked to be king, and it's like, oh, here we go. You're reading it, and here's this guy who's finally going to be the hero. But then, right, he falls, right? He fails. Moses, Aaron, they all fail. And Israel as a nation, it did not fulfill its mission to be a light to the nations as they executed their prophetic role to proclaim God's word and their priestly role of serving God in the temple and their kingly role in extending God's kingdom. And when we close the book, when we close the book at the end of the Old Testament, we are left with a deep sense of disappointment. There is an empty kind of helplessness at the inability of humanity to get it right, right? The people are in exile and we're wondering what's going to happen, what's going on, is, is God going to be faithful? There's this long period of of God's word not being, not coming to his people. But as soon as we open to the New Testament, as soon as we turn the page over, the opening verse explodes off the page. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you see what happens here? The New Testament opens up after that long time of silence, that long time of darkness in the Old Testament, and it explodes off the page saying, the son of David, the perfect one, the one we've been waiting for, the son of Abraham, the son of God, he is here. He has come to rescue his people. And this is just an amazing transition from the failure to the, to the success of Christ and what he can do, what all these others in his place failed to do. Now, there's other frameworks that we can 
follow throughout Scripture. There's other, there's other ways to understand kind of the flow of, of biblical theology, but this one is massive. We can't miss this. We, if we miss this, we can't understand the flow of Scripture. We can't understand the argument of, of why Christ had to come. So we have to get this. We have to see this. And hopefully, as we dig in deeper this summer, this will help us to understand and, and see that more clearly and embrace Christ as a result. So this son of David, the son of Abraham, he is also the son of Adam, the true and better Adam. As we love to sing in that great song, come behold the wondrous mystery. Come behold the wondrous mystery. He, the perfect son of man, in his living, in his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hellbound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in him we stand. Christ is the true and better Adam. Paul explains that in Romans 5. He also explains it in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. He says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Where Adam and Abraham and Moses and Aaron and David and all of the other prophets, priests, and kings, where they failed, our Lord Jesus Christ proved victorious. The next three questions in the Shorter Catechism are about how Christ executes these offices, and we'll be digging into these more, but I'm going to read them, and I would encourage you to go back and and look at these. How doth Christ, question 24, how doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? Answer is that Christ executed the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Question 25, how doth Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executed the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God, and in making continual intercession for us. We're looking specifically at these things when we dig into the book of Hebrews. Question 26, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executed the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So Christ's work as prophet, priest, and king, both in his humiliation, so his birth and his life and his death, and in his exaltation, his resurrection, his ascension, his session, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and his reigning as king, all of these things have serious implications for the church. They have serious implications for us as individual Christians as we seek to proclaim in that prophetic role as we seek to serve in that priestly role and as we seek to extend the kingdom of God in that kingly role. I was thinking about this a little bit and maybe you hear all that and you can maybe feel like a little schizophrenic or kind of split personality. Uh, How can we do all these things simultaneously and wear all these different hats? I was just thinking about my own life. Uh, I'm I'm a husband and I'm a father and I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm more things than that, but those are three things that I am, right? And I can't do all of those things always at the same time fully to the best of my ability. If I want to be able to give full attention to Lindsay, 
maybe we need to get away and get a babysitter, right? And get out of town for the weekend so that I can give all my attention to being a husband. If I want to give full attention to my duties as a pastor, uh, to doing sermon prep and other things, maybe I need some undistracted time here at the office, right? I need to be able to get away and focus on what I'm doing. And the danger, I think, for me is that I can very easily do any one of those three things to the exclusion of the others if I'm not careful. And that's similar for all of us, right? We all have different hats that we wear. We all have different roles. And we can all have that same struggle because we're not perfect, right? We're not like Christ. We can't do all of those things simultaneously. And Jesus, as our prophet, priest, and king, this isn't just some theoretical construct for us to to like feel really smart like oh I studied the Westminster Shorter Catechism and I know that Jesus is my prophet priest and king uh, or I'm like really reformed now because I, I use this language but there are lots of implications in this for how we work and how we worship corporately and individually and how we glorify God with our lives in this world so I would encourage you this summer Again, don't just view this as like, oh, this is nice, right? This is just some nice artificial thing that all these guys made up a long time ago. Uh, We need to really dig in. We need to dive in to see how this applies to our lives. And again, Belcher explores that in chapter eight. So I would encourage you, if you grab the book, read chapter one first and then read chapter eight. uh, And then we'll kind of be coming back to chapter eight. But he explores that, um, as I said, we'll be looking at in the final final sermon of each section, kind of that practical application for us. So that's our goal this summer, how we can glorify God with our lives in this world in terms of, in terms of what we want to accomplish, right, as, as his people, as individual Christians. But it must all come back to the hero of the story. Paul's not the hero. Augustine's not the hero. Luther and Calvin aren't the heroes. J.C. Ryle, as much as I love him, he's not the hero of the story. R.C. Sproul is not the hero. John Piper is not the hero. You and I are not the heroes. It's Jesus and him alone, our great redeemer, who is the hero and the redeemer of God's elect. And he is the one that we must encounter week in and week out in the word, in sacraments, and in prayer. We must see Christ rightly, and we must hear him speaking the truth of the living God to us. We must taste and see that our Redeemer is good. And we get an opportunity to do that now as he invites his chosen people to this table. We come to him as our prophet and as our priest and as our king, who in the very words of institution in the Lord's Supper, reminds us of who he is and what he has done for us in Christ. In Matthew chapter 26, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. He makes this prophetic declaration of who he is. He took the cup And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He describes here his priestly role in dying for his people and in forgiving them, shedding his blood, having his body broken. And he says, 
In verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. He points to his reign and his rule as king. So prophet, priest, and king, right here in the words of institution of the Lord's Supper, as we're reminded of of who Christ is, of what he has done for us. So as we prepare our hearts this morning to come to the table, let us be reminded of who Christ is, of what he has done for us, and what he continues to do for us as our prophet, priest, and king, king, as he continues to rule and reign and lead us as his people. This table is open to all of those who are Christians who have professed faith in Christ, who are, we ask that you would be someone who is in good standing in a gospel preaching church. Uh, you don't have to be a member of Livingstone Church, but we ask that you be a, a Christian who is, who is walking with the Lord and following Christ. If that is not yet you, uh, we would ask that you would refrain from coming to the table. We would love to talk with you more about what it means uh, to walk with Christ and to follow him. Uh, I will... I'm going to pray for the kids uh, first before uh, the adults come down. Then we'll come down. Uh, I think everyone's pretty familiar with the drill here. Come down, take one stack. Uh, the bread and, and the wine or juice are, are together in one stack. Return to our seats, and we'll all partake uh, together. So let me pray for the kids. Father, thank you for the young ones among us uh, who have not yet come to the table. God, we ask that you would do a work in their hearts. God, revealing to them your will, revealing to them from the scriptures who Christ is as prophet, priest, and king, revealing to them their sin and their need for a savior. God, we ask that you would bring these little ones to faith and repentance, that their eyes would be opened, that their hearts would be opened to see Christ, to embrace him by faith. God, we pray for the parents that you would strengthen them God, equip them to do the work that you have called them to do in leading these little ones to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.